live in one of the most religiously observant countries in the world. Many working class communities and communities of color are rooted in religious traditions. Yet for over 40 years, the religious right has focused much of its energy on seizing control of religious narratives and institutions. This is Heart of a Heartless World, a podcast produced by the Religious Socialism Working Group of the Democratic Socialists of America, the largest socialist organization in the United States. Our goal is to amplify the voices of people of faith organizing for social, racial, environmental, and economic justice. You can follow Religious Socialism on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and visit our website at religioussocialism.org. If you like what you hear, you can support us on Patreon. Hello, my name is Fran Quigley of the Religion and Socialism Working Group of the Democratic Socialists of America. We are the sponsor of this podcast called Heart of a Heartless World. We are excited today to have as our guest Christian Jordan, who goes by KRJ. KRJ is a poet, a teaching artist, an author, and an activist in the Harlem community, where she has started an independent publishing company called Pens Up Press. Pens Up Press focuses on Black and Latino literary activists, and Kristen is quite an activist herself. For many years, she has participated in the Black Lives Matter and the Occupy Wall Street mass movements, and she has been a longtime advocate for police accountability. Now she is taking all those years of activism and turning it into a campaign where she is a candidate for a New York City Council District 9 from Harlem. This, of course, is a religion and socialism podcast, so we want to make sure in this introduction to mention that Kristen is a member of the Democratic Socialists of America and the Social Justice Chair for the United Methodist Women at Salem Church. KRJ, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you for having me on. Well, great. We really appreciate the chance to talk with you. And and we had you and I talked about the kind of the order of what we want to discuss, and we had always intended to discuss your longtime work with Black Lives Matter and with uh, abolition and defunding the New York Police Department, but that is the moment that we are living in now. So let's go ahead and start right right away with that. What what are your thoughts about the moment and the movement that we're seeing on anti racism and on defunding the police? Well, I have to say, as as someone who has been interested in these topics and working towards this for a long time, I find it to be an, an exciting opportunity. Uh, I, I obviously think it's horrendous, the loss of life, and um, I, I find it very sad, the state that we're in. And still at the same time, I am looking at it with this lens of faith and hope and uh, opportunity for for maybe we have finally found this moment of of uh, making a better world. And I um, it's very interesting uh, for me personally in in my own sort of spiritual path here because I started this campaign a year ago. Uh, before George Floyd, before Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Aubrey, I, I started a campaign for New York City Council to represent Harlem last year because I felt already that there were too many names and I felt already that we needed to move in the direction of demilitarization, decarceration, and uh, 
abolition ultimately. And so it, it's been it's been a real whirlwind uh, to have been for the most part, kind of talking to the sky for uh, the better part of a year. And now all of a sudden this is, you know, the topic. So um, that part has has definitely been exciting. Uh, I did set out to disrupt the district. That's actually the slogan of my campaign. Oh, great, great. So, so I, you know, so I'm sort of like, okay, look at God, because we are actually disrupting the district right now. There are active demonstrations happening in Harlem on a regular basis where where we're talking about how we disrupt uh, the criminalization of our community. And uh, uh, not for nothing, but the, the seat, I am a challenger, and the seat that I am running for on city council, uh, the incumbent voted for de Blasio's uh, new jail expansion. So, oh, Wow. Uh, so this is literally the fight. This is literally like, are we are we going to continue to uh, do mass incarceration and oppression of our our black and brown communities, or are we going to do that liberatory struggle and reimagine our world? You know. Oh, that's exciting. I, like you say, I, I it's tragic that there's been additional loss of lives since you began this, but it's also so promising that others are catching up to you. And, and when they, they do KRJ, what is the, you know, how do you explain? I know there's a lot of folks who get mis, who get confused about the, the slogan defund the police or not quite sure mm-hmm. what abolition means. And, and many, many folks are new to this and you're not. So how, how would you explain to folks listening to this who, frankly, maybe never heard the phrase defund the police before two or three weeks ago? Well, I think it's. I think it always helps to start with where we are and uh, frame things in in our current context, right? So, mm-hmm. uh, we so we are right now in a state of of over policing. Uh, the budgets are large. Uh, right. There is a coverage for cops that are uh, simply walking or simply a presence in the neighborhood, uh, not investigating anything. Um, so what I start with, with people, uh, particularly in New York is the conversation about the $6 billion NYPD budget, you know, that we, we already have a, a really large budget that is being spent, uh, really inappropriately. And also, uh, in a way that for, for those of us who are in these neighborhoods, uh, there is, there's this constant, there's a violence to this, uh, constant police presence. And then there's, uh, actual violence in the, uh, form of, of lives lost. Right. So, uh, so when we say defund the police, I, I, I I do understand that different people say it in different ways. Uh, I am usually fairly clear when I say it uh, that when I say defund the police, I mean ultimately down to zero, as in move in the direction of abolition. Um, but uh, from the very basic level, we can start by taking away some of the funds that are are being overspent on the right. the abundance of 
police right now. So even if you yourself wouldn't consider yourself an abolitionist, I, I think any reasonable person can get on board with the fact that uh, we don't need a $6 billion NYPD budget and that we don't need uh, the number of cops that are currently uh, present to be present. And, um, and, and I think it's also important when we talk about defunding that we also talk about what we're funding. So I always like to bring that up too, that the, the goal is to rechannel money into into things that do what we uh, have been told and what some claim the police do, i.e. keep the community safe. So uh, how do we channel funds into community care models and uh, transformational justice models, restorative justice models, uh, things that are uh, mental health street teams, things that are going to really promote safety and and wellness in the community and, and prevent uh, violence and decrease violence and de-escalate violence in the community, uh, as opposed to, to adding violence on top of violence, which is, is what I feel the, um, the police do. Right. And $6 billion is not a tiny little amount of money, no, right? This not. is something that can be the, 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 the seed dollars for a real transformation of our community. $6 billion. That's remarkable. Um, so let me ask you a little bit about, about your campaign. This is uh, the city council for folks who don't live in, in New York. Uh, the, um, the elections are in 2021. Is that correct? Yes, correct. Okay. And the incumbent is running again in, in your district. Is that right? Yes. And has that incumbent wisely walked back the support for the jail expansion in the light of the last few weeks? Have you already had that effect? I would hope. Uh, That has not yet happened, uh, but it wouldn't surprise me if it does. Um, The the incumbent right now has been fairly MIA, so we we will see when they sort of resurface what happens in terms of walking things back. But I think the point remains that it is time for change and a, and a different way of looking at things and a different way of building things. And uh, I do feel like there's a lot I bring to the table as, I, I mean, as a democratic socialist and also as an abolitionist. And I, uh, you know, I just look forward. I have um, a, a full platform for those who are listening and want to check it out. It's on my website, kristinforharlem.com, and there's seven different focus areas. And so there's a lot that we can do to transform our community right now. And it's uh, and some of it is definitely related to how we how we can uh, de-escalate some of the police violence. Uh, but other things that are also on the platform are things like a New York Green New Deal that I I feel we really need to be pushing for, and um, better care for our seniors, uh, specifically staffing at the local senior centers, which is lacking. And uh, studies have shown that seniors need an advocate and that they do better in health outcomes across the board when they have an advocate, uh, even more so than income, them having an advocate uh, has better health outcomes. So 
there are other things on my platform uh, like that that are just, just you know, again, focusing on people, serving people. It, it's it, it's so strange that uh, it's become a radical thing, but um, but yeah, it's just serving the people. Well, folks like you getting elected every time makes it a little less radical, right? So I've just for folks listening, again, it's Kristen for Harlem, K-R-I-S-T-I-N for Harlem.com. And we will put the website, of course, in our notes for, for this podcast episode. So KRJ, let me ask you, you have just been a candidate here for a short period of time, but you have been an activist on these issues for, for many years. So your platform is is not something you have thought up because it's time to run for office. It's something that you've been working on and and pushing on and act as an activist for many years. So, what has what inspired you to make the switch from being uh, you know an, an activist with organizations to uh, adding on to being a candidate for office? I, I have to say I've been inspired by the new Congress. I mean, I think it's it's mm-hmm. absolutely amazing. I look at um, I look at the squad and I see uh, <laughs> strong women of color uh, who are right. unapologetic about their politics, who are uh, kicking butt, you know, and um, and I found it very inspirational and. I really didn't have a model or a mode of thinking that it would even be possible before, you know? So I think that has really blown the door wide open in terms of, of it being possible and um, that I wouldn't have to compromise views or take certain uh, special interest money or I wouldn't have to do anything that I felt was was not in my spirit, right, in order to run. Right. Uh, so that that has definitely been a huge, huge part of it. Uh, the other thing I will say is that I went to a 21 in 21 meeting, which is uh, an effort in New York to get 21 women elected to the New York City Council in the year 2021, uh, because it would bring us closer to gender parity on the uh, city council. So... I went to it, uh, this event and, and I really had the intention more of supporting, uh, someone else and just saying, okay, how can I get involved and, you know, support a woman running for office. And the message I got from, from the event was, you know, it's you, like you should run. (laughs) Oh, wonderful. That's right. So I also felt encouraged by that. Um, and then I'm spiritual as well, so I ha- I have also felt a uh, a lot of of signs in my own just communications with spirit. Yeah, let me ask you a little bit about that, KRJ. What what, what was your what has been your spiritual journey? Because of course we're all still on ours, right? right. So what what is your spiritual journey? Right. I uh, well, so I I grew up not particularly religious. My grandmother was um, very strong Baptist, and so if anything, my religious influence came from her. Uh, neither of my parents are religious. And so it was really just uh, time spent with my grandmother that sort of opened that window to um, Christianity. And I, uh, and I did, uh, I, you know, I, I, I guess I would say like, I did believe uh, somewhat or to whatever extent 
you can when you are a kid believe. Uh, but somewhere around my early teens, I heard a uh, pastor give a sermon that was uh very strongly worded and very condemning of those who were gay or lesbian. Uh, And I do identify as queer. And at the time, I didn't identify that way, but I was still figuring out that identity, right? And Mm -hmm. I was still figuring out sort of my own uh, sexuality. And, um, And of course, that that became a huge turnoff for me. And I, I really internalized that message, uh, unfortunately, that, that you know, God uh, doesn't like those who are gay or lesbian, that, 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 that those two don't go together, right? So that oh. actually pushed me away uh, from a lot of like spiritual or religious spaces for some time. As it has for too many, right? Yes. This is not an uncommon story. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So unfortunately, so, uh, but I will say that uh, I found my way back to spirit actually about, uh, about three and a half, four years ago, uh, because I was in a a very toxic marriage and, um, and it was, uh, at, at, at a few moments, uh, physical, but all the time, psychological and emotionally, um, uh, very toxic. And I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry too, though. I did learn a lot. I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about, uh, what I need and want and deserve. And, um, And, you know, as I guess is often the case, like sometimes in our darkest or hardest and most desperate moments, uh, that's, you know, that's when you look around and you're like, okay, but who's here? And, you know, God is, you know. Oh, wonderful. Um, So I think that that was a space where I I really uh, started to build and develop my own relationship with God, uh, really even just like independent of an institution. Um, and, uh, uh, and then it just grew from there, you know, and then I said, okay, I'm going to read more. I'm going to investigate more. I'm going to go to spaces more. And I found people who, uh, I found people who affirmed, uh, the version of, of God that I know to be real, uh, a, a loving, accepting God. Oh, wonderful. So you, I know are officially, um, active in, in a United Methodist uh, Church in Harlem, is that correct? Yeah, at Salem United Methodist Church. Okay. and uh, But do you have other uh, spiritual practices as well beyond the, the, the official church activity? I do, because I, I am also a member of uh, SGI, which is Soka Gakkai International. It's a Buddhist organization. Um, so I do identify as both Christian and Buddhist, and I do... Uh, practice both faiths. Wonderful. And do you find that is something that uh, both communities are embracing? That you're that you're a part of both communities? Yeah, there's actually a few of us. You know, we're we're a small but strong crew of, of a Christian Buddhists. And and yeah, and I do find like the the spaces I'm in are uh, like I said, very accepting and and. Um, really believe in a loving God, like a a God of freedom. And, you know, I think 
it, it, we're, we're also in an interesting time spiritually, right? Because you have, right. uh, you know, you have Trump standing in front of a church holding up a Bible and, um, you know, these various symbolic references. And it's sort of like uh, finding like, okay, well, where where is truly God speaking to us? And where is where are the things that are just for show? And, and that like, you know, we know that's not, we know that's not God. Right. Right. And then do you think it seems to me from what I've been able to see, but you may have seen something more different that the the faith community has responded well to mm-hmm. that. Uh, and, but um, that can't be a news cycle response. We're just going to have to consistently and thoroughly denounce the 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 misuse of of religion, the misuse of faith props. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think I think the response has been has been strong, and I also think, you know, this this moment we're in, where people are talking about defunding the police, and um, it, you know, in the case of Minneapolis, like uh, dismantling the police, you know, and um, uh, I think if we start having those conversations about abolition, we do ultimately wind up in a space of faith because. We're, we're what we're working towards, or what we're saying is that we we believe in the possibility of a nonviolent world, and um, that's a very hard thing for people to grasp or to believe in uh, without faith. You know, like the reason I see it as possible is because I know all things are possible with God. Right, and and uh, KRJ, let me circle back just for a minute to this this wonderful combination of of Christianity and Buddhism that that you embrace. How do the two, beyond just being a member of Mm -hmm. of two different organizations and and worship spaces, you know, how do they interact for you uh, spiritually? You know, how does Buddhist, how do Buddhist practices interact with your, your, your activity in in a traditional Methodist church, right? A traditional Methodist church with a social justice committee. Um, how do, how do they work together for you? Well, I really see, I really see, um, the Buddhism as a lot of my internal work. I mean, both have both. Absolutely. Right. Um, both, both, uh, religious practices have both, but I really tend to embrace a lot of, uh, Buddhist practice in terms of my internal work. So that, uh, you know, that idea of like, attaining your personal Buddhahood by um, sitting with yourself, chanting, meditating, uh, and studying, that those are, right. that, that, that is to, to build up the uh, reflection and the awareness of self, right? This, this sort of self-consciousness and your um, own, your own existence as like a spiritual being. Right. And then I see a lot of my Christian practice, uh, particularly because it is United Methodist as, uh, activists and, um, a little more outside the self and societal, uh, if that makes sense. Like I said, both do have both. Um, right. But that's sort of the way I practice. Right. That makes so much sense that you, you have, by working on yourself, you are making yourself into a, a better activist, a better candidate, a better community member, a better family member, all of that, right? Right. Um, that's really that's really terrific. Well, I this is a religion and socialism podcast, so we've talked about religion a bit. Let me ask you about socialism. You know, when did you first 
decide that, hey, you know what, I think I am. I'm, I'm a democratic socialist. When, when did that realization come to you? Oh, it came, so it came in college and it's, it's wonderful because uh, both my parents are capitalists and they don't get it at all. <laughs> um, so it's, a, it's, you know, there's always fun to be had there. Um, <laughs> You're the church going socialist and church going okay. meditating socialist in your family, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. To um, uh, to two parents who are are you know not definitely not anti religion, but not particularly religious, and definitely not socialist. So you know, it's an interesting, it's an interesting combination. Um, but I think um, I I think for me, it really ties in closely with my experience. Uh, with Black Studies, mm-hmm. so I went to I went to Brown University, and I uh, graduated with a, a double major in Black Studies and Literary Arts. And when I was um, first exploring Black Studies, I I came across all these like amazing. Black sort of socialist uh, revolutionaries uh, that I had only marginally learned about, if at all had learned about, uh, while in school, right? So I sort of had learned about you know, uh, King and and you know uh, even even a little bit about um, Ella Baker, you know. Sure. But then when uh, you know, but then when I went to college, I learned you know all about Asada. And, uh, I was learning, uh, more about just, just like the politics of, of, uh, black liberation as it is tied to and closely related to, uh, a politic of economic liberation as well. And, uh, that opened up a new space for me. I definitely, come from a place of privilege in that both my parents are physicians. And so I, I do think that maybe brings a different perspective from someone who is socialist and, and from, I guess, a, a poorer economic background. Uh, but I, I found my way to it because, you know, as I started reading these different theories and I started learning about like, okay, well, what would it really mean to have freedom? What would it, what would like black liberation really look like? Um, and ultimately the liberation of all people really look like it, it, you know, it's intimately tied with freeing everybody from economic oppression. Right. So, uh, you, you know, you can't have one without the other. So, that's how I found my way to to being a a socialist and really believing in redistribution of wealth. And I put that on my platform as well. And uh, you know, it's it's something that we really. I I don't know how we get there because we have such a concentration of wealth in this country, mm-hmm. and it seems to be ever increasing, and the gap just seems to be widening. Uh, where you have even those who who have been middle class, sort of like straddling and struggling, but I think the uh, ultimately we have to be able to call for those who have the most 
to relinquish that wealth. You know, in New York City, we have approximately a million millionaires. Wow. Okay. Wow. But we, right. Wow. Like we have approximately a million millionaires. And we spend $6 billion on police to protect them, right? That's uh, Right. And it's like, but we don't have an accessible subway. We don't have free subway. We don't have uh, clean streets. We don't have a New York Green Deal. We don't have staff at the senior centers, but we have a million millionaires. Like, you know, so we really have to start thinking about things in terms of, of what's possible, there's so much more that's possible that can make all of our communities uh, stronger and freer and just really like all of humanity better off uh, redistributing wealth from, from the, you know, it's, it's completely excessive from those who really have just an excessive, unimaginable amount. Well, that's... What a wonderful campaign speech. I know that's not what it is. I know it's what you've been living for many years, but uh, it is a wonderful campaign speech, which which leads me to something I wanted to ask you about. You you are running for office in the middle of a pandemic, right? And and uh, which means you're not going to uh, uh, as many live in-person meetings per week as I, I know you used to even before you started to be a candidate, certainly than you would ordinarily. So what is what does your campaign look like now? What what do you do to get this message out? Well, so this I mean this podcast is very helpful. So I appreciate the platform uh because things like this are are part of what we're doing. Uh we do have a a social media presence. Uh, I and my team are, have been posting YouTubes uh, that are highlighting different parts of the Kristen for Harlem platform. Uh, we also have developed a pretty robust uh, phone banking team where we have volunteers and myself and team members uh, calling people in the neighborhood. We actually started it around COVID as a way to uh, reach out and support any seniors or anyone in the community who needed extra food or needed uh, anything in terms of mutual aid. Uh, but we have since uh, built it uh, to talk about the campaign as well. Uh, so we get the message out through the phone banking, but it's definitely been a real struggle. Like the the visibility and uh, for those who know local campaigns, that's pretty much what it is. It's a game of visibility. Uh, is is that's a very real struggle. Right. Um, but those are some of the things we're doing. Oh, we we also have done some some guerrilla flyering tactics as well, which uh, those are those have been fun. Uh, just like. Flyers made on different topics in different ways. Some of them are collage work and they have different messages related to uh, liberation and the, and the platform. Uh, so that's also been great. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, KRJ, thank you so much. Again, Kristen Jordan, a member of the DSA, an active religious socialist and a longtime activist in the Black Lives Matter movement, in the abolition movement and in so many other social justice causes. Now a candidate for New York City Council District 9 out of Harlem. Um, KRJ, I want to thank you for being a part of the Religion and Socialism podcast. Thank you for joining. Thank you. Thank you again for, for having me on. I appreciate the platform. Well, we appreciate what you're doing. So good luck and, and, uh, and continue the fight. We appreciate you. 
This has been an episode of Heart of a Heartless World, a podcast produced by the Religious Socialism Working Group of the Democratic Socialists of America. This episode was produced by Jeremy McMahon with intro music by Party Dark. You can follow Religious Socialism on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and visit our website at religioussocialism.org. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting us on Patreon.